Hey everybody, I'm Kevin. And I'm Kayla. We love movies. Uh, talking about them. This is the Martini Window. Uh, with us today we have accomplished composer for such films as See You Next Christmas, Psycho, Storm Tracer, and the recent viral sensation, Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey. Uh, everybody please welcome Mr. Andrew Scott Bell. Andrew, hey, welcome. Hey, thanks guys. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you for coming aboard. Uh, you know, uh, we were big fans of the movie. We loved Winnie the Pooh. And, uh, you know, you and I have been talking on Twitter for a little while. So I want to actually help you on board because you got a lot to say about a lot of different things I've noticed. And uh, <laughs> and uh, also, you're the inventor of the honeycomb violin. Yeah, the beehive violin. Uh, is that what it's called? The beehive violin. Okay, That's what I've violin. been calling it. Um, though, real quick, I'm not, uh, I'm not the inventor of it. I'm just the one who, uh, I'm just the person who, thought to use it in a film score. Um, the, the inventor of it is this really incredible um, experimental luthier named Tyler Thackray. He goes on Instagram as at violin torture and his content is if you play the violin or, or are in at all the classical music uh, you know, scene, his content will be like vomit inducing for you because he like destroys violins in the most fun way. Like what would happen if I filled it? <laughs> what would a violin sound like if I filled it with jello uh, and tried to play it like that, that kind of fun stuff, you know? And so when I signed on to Winnie the Pooh, I remember, I remembered a New Yorker article that was written about him. Uh, and one of the sentences was, you know, quote, for example, I, put a violin inside of a beehive just to see what would happen. So I reached out to him and I said like, you know, do you still have that violin? And he said, Oh my God, I forgot all about it. And it had been inside the beehive for two years. So we went up, my manager and I drove up from Los Angeles to San Francisco and we filmed taking it out and taking it apart and putting it back together. And yeah, yeah. Now that's a bonus feature on the Blu-ray. It's like a 24 minute short documentary about all about bees. It ended up, it's like, I'm getting long winded with my answer here, but it's like it ended up being so much more. I thought it was just going to be like a cool violin. Like, doesn't it look cool? But it's just a violin, but it sounds different. And then the movie, the little short film movie that we made, like is really educational about bees. And, oh, I've like, seen it. You've, you've seen, seen it. it. It's, uh, so it's on yeah. YouTube. It's on YouTube. Yeah. So Tyler is just such a smart guy. And like, he's, he's the type of person who has like 27 hobbies, you know, but he dives yeah. into like all of them. Like he makes, he, he's not, this isn't his beehive. He like people pay him to like take care of their beehives. So he'll just go from huh. like over huh. to their house and like make sure the bees are okay. And then they get all the honey oh. and he gets like a little bit of honey and he goes and then he also makes, he takes that honey and he makes mead with it. And like, so he's just like, you know, a master, you know how they say like whatever, something, something, ma uh, master of none for people who have a lot of oh, hobbies. Uh, jack of all trades. Jack of all of trades. Master. He's like a jack of all trades and a master of all of them. Like he's just <laughs> such a brilliant guy. You're I will say I was sad when I heard about what happened to Eeyore. <laughs> Eeyore was my favorite. You know, I mean, I would love to see. I, I, when I first thought of this movie, I mean, I mean, not I didn't think of this movie, but when I was first asked to to score this movie, and I was thinking about the movie, I was like, uh, and I know I've heard Reese say this too, so maybe he said it, and I was thinking of it too. But like, how would you make you know? This is very much like Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey. I've seen some criticism that's like, oh, it's just dudes in masks. And it's like, 
it's kind of a throwback to the 80s like you know killer clowns from outer space which are yeah. just dudes in masks you know you got to suspend yeah. your disbelief like a little bit more than we are asked to do so with all the modern cgi techniques now but yeah. it's it's really a throwback to that era and like how would we have you know on a micro fifty thousand dollar budget how would we have an eeyore live action would it be like two dudes in like you know with like the legs you know what i mean like uh yeah. trying to imagine it but then i i don't know if i was I, it must have been a podcast or something but somebody had this really cool idea that was like make him like a job of the hut like immobile creature and i was like oh that would have been cool he's just like big and he's just like laying there and he can't move anymore his um, his tail would probably be like a spine brace with a rusty nail or something in it. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, a little spoiler. Um, he is kind of present in the movie, not just in the animation, but there's a scene where Pooh whips Christopher Robin with Eeyore's tail, and people have said like, you know, I try to digest all of this because I don't know when the next time something like this is going to happen in my career. So that's why I'm just like, I like yeah. to engage with the fans. I like to like. You know, I take this moment because really this could be it's a once in a lifetime moment that, that I've had yeah. a movie that is spread across spread the world across. like this. And I'm trying not to like, you know, be, I'm not a person who wants to take something like that for granted. So I've you seen really people take say, it all in. Right. Yeah. And like meet, you know, meet all these fantastic people who either appreciate it or, you know, I mean, there's plenty of great jokes at our expense that are, you know, if you're not thick skinned, you, you might be offended by, but that are yeah. just funny. Like it's, it's been fun to read everyone's criticism, feedback, you know, so long as it's not constructive or aimed at the filmmakers, it's been great. But one of the yeah. things I was saying is that I've, that I saw was like, how could a, how could Eeyore's tail, like make like just the hair of his tail, like rip Christopher's flesh. But as you point out, if you're Winnie the Pooh, aficionado you know that eeyore's tail is pinned on by a nail or whatever yeah. like right attack correct so it's i mean that's what's like ripping Which the is like, skin do these off people of... have the right to complain if they don't understand lore i'm just <laughs> I mean, saying yeah it's well, the lore is an interesting question because i mean i don't want to go too far down a rabbit hole but <laughs> there's there's confusion with like how much is disney's edition and how much is in the book and we only had access to the original book so for right. example something like oh bother uh I, f I feel like I heard Reese say that Oh Bother is not in any of the books, or if it is, it's not in the first book. So right. we couldn't have oh. Winnie the Pooh say Oh Bother. Um, we also couldn't have Tigger in this movie because he's introduced in the second book, which is public domain in 2024. Um, there's uh -huh. like a lot of things that right. we couldn't use um, because those are Disney's creation. And even just like the existence of a voice is such a subjective opinion based thing like yeah. if we had Winnie the Pooh talking how close could we get it to Disney's version there's no other version of on screen Winnie the Pooh talking so you know because right as soon, you so, know it's it was a book and then it was Disney's and then Disney bought the rights to it so, so only, Jim Cummings is more or less the you know not just the definitive voice but pretty much the only voice of Winnie the Pooh right and so how could you people wanted to hear Winnie the Pooh talking and saying catchphrases but how could you how could you really realistically like do a voice that would scratch that nostalgic itch for people that wasn't um, a legal offense, suable, you know, you know, um, that of which Disney could take action for? Does that make sense? No, because, that makes a lot of sense. Because they own that, that voice. Lion very, yeah. very closely.
Two, these two movies have amazing music, and that's my bridging okay, commonality okay. here. <laughs> well, first of all, thank you for the compliment. I I think like um, I think Reese was was you always kind of every time I work with a new director, it's like you know you feel out their preferences and you feel out their tastes. And Reese, um, as I was pushing the envelope a little bit, he never really pushed back. So I it was really fun in that way, like you know, this was a, it's a micro, it's not even a low, it's a micro budget horror slasher, you know, um, B movie. Uh, it's really like, it's almost like a satire of those eighties, low budget movies yeah. that we like uh, blood rage or something like that, that are just yeah. so ridiculous and, you know, fun to watch because they're just absurd. I mean, how can you watch Winnie the Pooh running with a machete and not laugh? You know, that that's the plan. I mean, if you're um, walking into that movie planning on taking it seriously, I mean, that's the problem with yourself, real. I think some people but, did. I think I think some people do think that we were being serious, that that we were lacking in humor. But I think there's kind of a fine line where it's like, if you're trying to be funny, then it becomes like Zombievers, which is yeah. a, a super fun. Love that movie, but it's not a fun movie. But we were trying to make, I think Reese was trying to make, and the whole creative team was trying to make like, humor in the in taking it seriously therefore being funny if that you know like it's such a weird thing it is just a straight up slasher movie where you have winnie Pooh and piglet there and i think that's what's great about it i actually found that i really liked the set design because it it almost leaned into more of a texas chainsaw massacre style of you know like where a lot of the kills in that took place yeah and i felt that like that really visually put to me this is the kind of movie I'm watching. Like I, I love B movies. I love that kind of thing. I felt like the set was like, okay, this is what we're in for. This is great. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. That set is a lot of fun. I mean, I, I don't know. Um, I don't know how much of it was there previously. Cause I know they rented some Airbnbs, um, but I'm sure they had set dressing and stuff. Uh, I met the makeup effects artist. Uh, she's fantastic, but I don't think the set dresser was, was there at the premiere in Mexico city, but yeah, it's a, it's, I mean, I love Vince, the cinematographer. I've known him for years. Uh, and the look of this movie is, you know, he does such a great job. I think that, I think the whole team, like we all, we all did, we all pushed it beyond its budget. You know, if you're really, yeah. if you really know how much it costs to make a movie, like we made this for 50,000, 50,000 is like how much, um, you know, universal spent on food in a day for Halloween ends. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Uh, like that's, that's the perspective we're talking about is like, that's the catering budget for a day on a huge, massive, big budget movie. Oh, I understand completely. Yeah. I have my own feature coming out, uh, in July with a uh, girl gone bad and, now, I'm not going to announce our budget, but I'll tell you, it was not seven digits. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. I mean, and but you, we can make that movie, and it, it's not, it's not like cruel to say that we're all like we were just all on board. Like nobody was, yeah. feeling shafted or anything. Like you know, we were all just like, um, we all just wanted to make this fun movie that was crazy and over the top. And, yeah. And my part, being alone in my recording studio, was to you know have a. Have a choir singing Latin, but the Latin translation means blood and honey, you know, like how silly and dumb. I think we're going to take that farther in the, uh, I think we're going to take that farther in the sequel where it's like, we're doing uh, honey like, never dies. Was that the name of it? Honey never dies. The sequel. Was that the name of it? I thought I remembered, uh, 
a, t- a, a sequel title announced. Oh, 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 I think we made a spoof because um, in, Mex- oh, okay. in Mexico, uh, uh, we were number two or something like that. Or I can't remember where we were on opening weekend in because it opened in Mexico for a couple of weeks before it came to the rest of the country. And, and I remember before that, yeah. it came to, yeah. and even though Avatar had been out for months, that was the only one that like, or maybe we beat it or something. I don't remember. We, it was either we were just below Avatar or just above Avatar. Yeah. And so we joked about saying that we were going to call the, the sequel The Way of Honey. <laughs> That's what it was. The Way of Honey. That's what it was. Do it. Yeah. Do it. Yeah. yeah so <laughs> I think we just, we, we kind of like tried to, I mean, that's the thing about this, the humor in this movie is that it's like, it's not jokes. It's not, um, you know, funny lines. It's like the absurdity of the situation and the yeah. music. This, I think we did that in the music too, which is like, if you're just listening and you're, you're just like, Oh, this is a choir chanting Latin. You're going to go, this is super serious. Like, why is he going so hard? But if you actually were like, what were they saying? And you found out that it's just like Latin for blood and honey, you know, you might, might think that's <laughs> kind of funny, you know, it's like, um, so yeah, thank you for your compliment. We did, we did go a little hard, but, it was fun. It was a lot it's, of fun. The fun comes across on screen. Oh yeah, absolutely. So and to, the music goes hard in the, a goofy movie. Yes, it truly. Does. Good segue. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I stole it from you, so. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, it really does actually. Um, by C- Carter Burwell's score in general is just fantastic in it. But uh, and yeah, so I think a lot of people miss that. I don't think a lot of people know that this is you know a Carter Burwell score and you know songs. Because it was Disney early was in his going, career, uh, Disney had some real like the, a lot of the people that they had in those earlier in those '90s years and the Renaissance years really went on to big trajectories too, though. And mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. you look at the fact that you had Alan freaking Menken writing the uh, songs for Beauty and the Beast. Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. you know, you look. Is it never uh, surprises me to see who came out of this era of Disney animation and who went on to great lengths? I mean, uh, oh man. I mean, Brad Bird's a good example, but he Brad was also uh, rock. Yep. He was rocking with Simpsons at the time too, though. Yeah, yeah. Brad Bird. That's there's a really cool documentary about him and his time at Disney, and then how he kind of left Disney, and um, and it. I think it goes all the way up to like him and Pixar, but it's a really. Yeah. I can't remember where it's on. It's probably not Disney Plus, but <laughs> that's probably on Netflix <laughs> or something. But it's a he's. They all have such great stories. Uh, you know, that the nineties era Disney movies were kind of um they were kind of experimenting, I think. I mean, even just, you know, this isn't I mean, it's lumped in with the nineties because I think it's eighty nine, but Little Mermaid was such a risk, I think, taking because yeah. at that time Howard Ashman uh and Alan Menken um had done a couple of things but most notably and it was off broadway it wasn't even like a huge broadway smash it was like you know down the street was little shop of horrors like this at that time a really indie little yeah. and I, I can't remember if the movie came out first or whatever that that might have happened one of our favorites actually when did the movie come out did it come out before i think the movie came out after the stage musical i think 1986 okay so they had a big they had a big movie then then it's less of a risk than i was thinking yep yeah so it's maybe less of a risk but still like you know i to bring those guys on from that movie to do like a disney cartoon i think it's like a big swing you know to bring like the the murdering plant guys to come and do the little mermaid um i agree no i agree completely and um you know it's 
a little bit of a weird note to that. Uh, Alan Menken also went on to write, and I kid you not, the opening musical number from uh, Seth Rogen's Sausage Party. Oh, really? Did they... that was an that was That's an Alan amazing. Menken uh, song. That's crazy. That's awesome. He's uh, got. He God. has such a storied career. I was just nostalgia thinking about the Hunchback of Notre Dame and how that's like one of his masterpieces in terms of music, you know, musical, like um, the way that he uses music from Catholic liturgy and stuff like that in that soundtrack for a kid's movie. And it's just, it's so dark. It's so heavy. I Um, actually find that Frollo's villain song mm -hmm. is like, when I was a kid, that was the scariest villain song I heard when he was singing Hellfire. Yeah, Hellfire, dun, dun, dun. And actually, also, like, that Hellfire theme. <laughs> Whatever it is, I don't know. <laughs> There's a, that's also this, this the, the, in a, that's in a minor key, but in the major key, that's the theme for the bells of the church. It's like. It's a really cool score that that I you can just see how he was just like molding like he was playing with his thematic. He always does this. Uh, many great composers do, but you can just in that one really feel how he's like, how he sees his musical themes as not firm, you know, firm objects, but like clay that's moldable and malleable that you can stretch and move into yeah. different different scenes for different emotions. And you know, people like John Williams are one of the best at doing this. You know, they'll he'll have like Marion's theme or something that's clearly normally a romantic theme but then he'll he'll use it in a different scene that marion's not even in because it it because it's malleable because it moves it can it's not just marion's theme or this isn't just hellfire it's the the it's it's bigger it's it's all of the it's all of catholicism or so you know like he's playing with it in a bigger way kind of making them uh, the music a part of the storytelling oh absolutely very big sense i you know I feel like most music's job is to do that as as a composer, though. But I'm not a composer, so maybe I'm talking out of one ear. No, it absolutely is. Yeah, Kayla, what were you going to say? I I love that um, with music and what I find with uh, a lot of composers is you're able to bring in influences and elements without having to have them be the spotlight. So you can Uh get your ideas in there without having to justify it to producers as a big thing in the script. You know, like you can you can put all of these influences together in a way that's really subtle and just like hope that people get them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. I think, I think at least in film, uh, I often oh. think of my job or at least one aspect of my job. There's much more to it than what I'm about to say, but I often think of my job as almost like a highlighter in that, um, like I'm there to highlight certain elements that are there in the script. Like, uh, you know, in Winnie the Pooh, for example, like there's, there's an element of abandonment that is a streamline, you know, the trauma from being abandoned. There's a, you know, I mean, it's a B movie, silly, goofy thing, but like, there's still a theme throughout that movie that, that I tried to highlight or bring to the surface, bubble up to the surface musically between Christopher Robin and Winnie the Pooh 
and the feeling that he, the guilt that Christopher feels that he abandoned Pooh, the anger that Pooh feels and the trauma for, from being abandoned, you know, uh, yeah. those things that, you know, are in the script, not necessarily like spoken, but definitely there in feeling throughout, like as a thread throughout the whole movie. Yeah. Our job as composers is to kind of highlight that and maybe raise it up a little bit so that people feel it, even if it's not being said, you know? So I think that's a great, great point, Kayla. I was just going to say, it really sounds like a case of like, uh, you know, no job too big, no job too small, right? Like, mm-hmm. You even if you have a B movie there, you still you still have a movie to with with ha- which has a story to be told. And I think mm-hmm. it's important to hear what you're saying that you know you're treating it the same way you would treat some prestige drama. You know what I mean? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. There's always. I mean, there's. Yeah, I mean, I uh, I I can't remember who said it. There was a film composer interview, and it was like, I I in order to do my job and like still love myself after like I have to fall in love with the movie every time. Yeah. Uh, And I just, you know, so one of the things that I just like hate hearing is when somebody says to me like, Oh, I didn't really like the movie, but like, I loved your music. I'm like, Oh, like I know people have said that to me a lot, but like, and they think they're complimenting me. But, and I, right. so I, I don't like, you know, scold them of course, or anything like that, but no. it, a little no. bit, I'm like, Oh, but I love, like, don't you see the movie that I see? Cause like, yeah, maybe it's just cause I've spent so much time with this movie and read the script over and over again, watched it every scene, like, you know, dozens of times as a hundred, multiple dozens of times as I'm working on it. It's like, Oh, but you, it seems like you might be missing something that I know is really great in there. You know? Um, yeah. So yeah. yeah, I I feel like I fall in love with all the movies I work on, and which uh, it's give it all, you know, give my give my best for everyone. Yeah, which is interesting the way you say that too. How you're saying why can't you see the movie I'm seeing? Is when we actually were talking about a goofy movie, this wasn't a critical success when it first came out. This no, was, it wasn't. No, this was a very different movie for Disney at that time. Like when we were watching it uh, just for recording this last night and. I haven't seen a Goofy movie since I was probably about 12 years old. And uh, I'm in my 30s now. And so I'm watching it for the first time since then. And I, I think I told you on Twitter last night, this thing has just shot up so many so, so many spots in my Disney rankings. It's such a nuanced, nice personal take of a story. Yeah. And I don't think people were ready for that at that time for Disney. They weren't ready to see our entire story. It's just going to be a dad and his son on a road trip. This is like John yeah. Hughes stuff, man. This was yeah. a John Hughes movie starring Goofy and uh, Max. Absolutely. Like, I think it opened uh, opening weekend. It opened number two to bad boys, of course, because that was, or bad boys two, I think maybe the sequel. Well, I mean, it was, if it's bad, it's, boys, it's bad yeah, boys. It's Will Smith. It's, it's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. And then, but then the other problem it faced uh, was, um, I think a month or a month and a half later was Pocahontas coming out. So like everybody who right. was right, going right. to see one Disney movie that year or whatever, you know, like similar to, um, I think the, the solo movie had the same problem, which, uh, yeah, you know, like Excellent they, they changed too, the release. Actually. Love that movie. It's such yeah. a fun, like Indiana Jones kind of treasure hunting or something, you know, kind yeah. of movie. It's super fun. Um, so it, it did have some problems, but, but I, but you're right. I think people were just weren't ready for it, uh, or didn't really know what to expect though. I have my theories on this movie and why it hits so well. And we'll get into that. I think a little bit 
later. I, I want it to happen more naturally, but yeah, it, I'm even saying. though it's like so different from Beauty and the Beast or Pocahontas, where there's like a love interest and a villain that you have to kill and you know defeat at the end, it's not that movie at all. But it still follows the musical formula of the Disney Renaissance that I think is fantastic. And the characters, like you were saying, there's a love interest, and you know, there's all those like hallmark points of that of that kind of movie i find that the characters in this are written to be very nuanced mm-hmm. i like that roxanne when she's doing the aerial thing gets her hands caught in her hair and she's also a really awkward teenager mm-hmm. yeah. and in another movie she would have just been perfect she would have been the popular girl who didn't mm-hmm. do anything awkward right and i don't think she you know it's interesting too because like i don't think she is the popular girl um yeah. Because I, in that opening number, which which if you're a, if you're a Disney fan or a musical theater buff, <laughs> you know that like almost every musical ever in the history of the world starts with an opening ensemble number to establish like you know the feeling and energy of the of yeah. the musical, the show mm-hmm. or the or the movie, and in this one it's the you know after today our brains will be snoozing right. <laughs> That yeah. that yeah, opening yeah. number has some like the whole span of like all the clicks. Like they've got some goth kids, they've got the popular girls, you know, um, they've got the jocks. So like if you if you see the whole school, like I don't think Roxanne is like the popular girl, you know. She's maybe like a little bookish. She's got she's friends with the valid Victorian, you know. Um, yeah, she definitely seems a little bit more academic than anything else. Yeah, and I think you're right, Kayla. Like in any other movie, she would be like the cool kid, hot, you know, hot chick or whatever, you know, that stereotype that that is in so many of those movies that the goofy kid is crushing on and sees as unattainable. But really, it's just like he's just shy about this girl that he likes, and she's not like the top of the popular team. You know what I mean? She's just yeah. somebody that he likes, and I think that's really nice. And the first time you see her, she helps him up after some kids are bullying him. Right. And they're both very shy. It's very sweet. They're both very shy together. He does that laugh and she, she, you know, he thinks it's so terrible, <laughs> you know. But in reality, it yeah. won her heart. I know. It's such a sweet movie. It's such a sweet movie. And Caleb, I'm something too. Like the one thing I found about this movie, for a Disney movie especially, these are very realistic teenagers compared mm. to uh, compared to a lot of what you saw in the era, what you see now um, for a lot of movies. Like they're all very nuanced. Like Caleb said, none of them are perfect. They all seem to have these little bookish flaws. They all seem to have uh, bits about them that show that they're going through that awkward phase in life that literally everybody goes through. Mm-hmm. Um. I think it's very fascinating because I have to wonder if maybe that's part of the reason why as a kid, I honestly didn't like the movie as much. I think that may be why is because I didn't fully grasp some of the nuance of what the movie was doing in its storyline. Yeah. Um, a movie made by adults that was realistic about high school. That is something you have to go through high school to fully understand what yeah. that's like, you know, like as a kid, you're like all of the movies are just like, you know, 30 year olds playing teenagers. And so you don't have a realistic idea of what high school is going to be like until you get there or have lived through it, you know, like super bad, for example. Or then those, and then there's those of us who uh, got to see this movie after getting to know Max through goof troop. Right. There's the extra level of a rug pull there. 
<laughs> right? I, there's and there's there's so much like I didn't I didn't watch Goof Troop, so I only ever watched this movie. We had it on VHS, and man, if I tell you that thing is worn out. Um, <laughs> um, but even still, like revisiting it as an adult, like you see, just like you see, like oh man, like Goofy's a single dad. They don't really get into why. You know, it's not necessarily yeah. like an important subplot or anything. He's just he's doing his best. He's making his lunch for his kid. He's picking yeah. up his laundry. Like he's, you know, working at the mall, taking pictures and he's doing his best as a dad. And you're just like, that's, that's a part that Mark. I didn't uh, really notice when I was He's seven, essentially a working six. class hero. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. As an adult, you really see Goopy's perspective. You're like, maybe take your kid into the house and ask him why he doesn't want to go and talk about it first. <laughs> right. But you 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 see that he genuinely just wants to spend time with his son, and he's worried about his son. Yeah, yeah. But you see, the problem, as Ryan George would say, is that if they talk about that at the beginning of the movie, then the movie doesn't happen. Then it's a really, really short movie. It's a really short movie, and I'm sorry, when they finally have that talk, it needs to be on a floating car that somehow is going to operate in like five minutes later that's well, floating down a river. Well, can we can we talk now briefly about like the the the, the musical numbers in this movie and the function that they that they serve? Please do, please do. I think I... this movie is the smartest of the Disney Renaissance movies because there's not like a clear villain. There's not like a way, you know. At the end of the movie, there's not like a throwing scar off of Pride Rock. I win. The hero wins the day. You know, the conflict resolution is very different at the end of this movie. Um, but like, so for example, the opening number is a big ensemble opening number and it's everybody yes. singing how excited they are that it's the last day of school and what they want to do with the summer. And everyone's, you know, everyone's wants are superficial. I, I want to really? up with the comics. I want to read comics all day. Somebody says, I'm going to live, want to live at the pool, you know, or going to live yeah. at the mall, um, you know, hang out at the pool you know, the bus driver says, I'm going to sit on my butt. Everyone's talking about <laughs> what they want to do. The movie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, but then Max's I want is I want to be noticed. I want to be more than just a goof. I want to be, I want to stand out. You know, he's, he's, he has a couple of moments during the, you know, she looked right through me and who yeah. could blame her? Like I need a new me just to, to um, just some positive proof that I'm not just a goof, you know, like he's, his, I want is a little bit deeper, which makes us connect to it. But this, this function of like an opening ensemble piece doubling as the, I want song. So yeah. for, for anyone who doesn't know what an, I want song is, it's like, that's the like pivotal. You guys know, I know, but yeah. anyone listening, that's like the pivotal song, like, um, part of your world. That's where the, the main character sings like, this is what I'm looking to get from this story that you're watching. Um, and in beauty and the beast, they, they paired together many, you know, a couple of years before goofy movie, they paired together the ensemble and the, I want song so that the movie just starts like, boom, off to the races, you know, like let's yeah. get this thing going as fast as possible. Here's the ensemble. And this is what Belle wants. Let's go. We're in the movie. And they did that in this one too. This opening ensemble is not only Max's I want song, but it's like the entire school's I want song. And in juxtaposition to their like superficial, like 
I want to sit at the pool and Max is looking for like deeper meaning in his want. Um, We really like automatically, like we're right in there. We're connected with Max. And then the, just like at the end, the power line song that we hear right after with it, he's like lip syncing. Yeah. The power line songs in this movie reinforce the song that precedes them. So the, um, this one stand out above the crowd. That is what Max is singing that he wants to do. That power line song is reinforcing his, I want in the opening number. It's really cool. That's fascinating. I also find that very, very interesting with Max that it's almost like his own self doubt is worse than anything he actually does because he nails the dance thing Uh on the last day of school. He doesn't have like a localized group of bullies who are just teasing him. They're just teasing him because he's unpopular. But those same people see his dance number and they're like, hey, you're one of us now. Yeah, you're cool. Hey, you got it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, which is honestly, it's like, again, as I go back to how I was saying how I last watched this when I was far younger, you know, having been through high school, you know, 15 years on now. uh yeah, it's crazy to see how well they kind of hit the teenage experience in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. and how much and how perfectly they nailed like the subtle feelings you have. Like Max's deeper meaning, I think, is one of those things that we really do. Like most people, I think, felt this at some point in their life growing mm-hmm. up. Most people, you know, at least uh, most people in a, in a somewhat good situation, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, they probably they probably felt this at some point in their lives in their lives, and to see an entire movie based around this. While combining it with, uh, you know, I'm not a parent, but combining it with Goofy's um, need to have that one last time with his son and make sure he's doing a good job as a dad, you know, his entire yeah. motivation being trying to make sure his son stays out of jail in the most goofy way you could think of. Yeah. It's just beautiful when you're seeing it from the outside looking in. You're seeing that now after having had all this experience that Max has now had and just seeing the level of it. Like, there's really two perspectives to this movie. And it came at a time in the 90s where things were really changing. They're try- they were trying to be more hip with a lot of this. If you look at a lot of the dialogue of the time, the clothing of the time, compared to other things they were doing in Disney. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They were really trying to attract... And when you find out, when you realize, too, this was released in 95, I mean, smack dab in the middle of the decade. <laughs> yeah. Tapes, there's... It's kind of a nostalgia bomb movie because there's, like, cassette tapes and landlines yeah. and cheese whiz and, you know, like... Polly Pauly Shore. Polly Shore. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone probably, when they meet him, would like quote other movies, and I would come up and go, "Leaning Tower of Cheese." So, you know? <laughs> it's so funny because when I've told people that, uh, oh yeah, we're doing a goofy movie with the composer from Winnie Pooh, Blood and Honey, the very first thing they do every single time is, "All right, Leaning Tower of Cheese." <laughs> every single time. So I think this is just ubiquitous, actually. It's, yeah, that's true. He probably gets it all the time. I think I'm like oh, the only man. one, and he. <laughs> <laughs> no, man. Oh, geez. If any younger people wanted to know, like what what stereotypes in cartoons existed in the '90s, just watch this movie. That's true. That's true. Yeah, yeah, that is absolutely true. Um, the the Ferris Bueller run in the beginning of it. Oh man, and I go back to what I was saying about this being a John Hughes movie with Goofy and accident. Like the opening scene alone being a complete homage to a uh, Ferris Bueller. Was oh, perfect. for sure. You know, I never like, noticed that. That's cool. Oh, yeah. And it's actually funny because we had just watched Ferris Bueller beforehand for another episode. <laughs> and so oh, wow. literally those two movies side by side and so to see the parallels with uh, the John Hughes era or something else. 
Um, it really is. It really is. Yeah. Like it's a road trip. John Hughes. It starts in high school with all the stereotypes. You know the the jocks, the, the yeah. cheerleaders on the bus with the goth. The goth girls are like, no more pep rallies to skip. Blah. You know, it's <laughs> it's very fun. Yeah. But then he comes home from this like like Max comes home from this big. He's got a moment. He's cool now. He's going. He's gonna get what he thinks he needs. It's like yeah. these I want songs are what the characters want, but not what they need. Always, always in the in the good musicals. Yeah. So he thinks he needs. So he's he's been invited to the party, and they're gonna go watch the Powerline concert, and that's when he's finally gonna like you know smooch Roxanne or whatever you know we wanted as yeah. teenagers. The um, peak thing that Disney teenagers want. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> And he gets home and Goofy's like, we're going on a trip. And one of the things we learned from not only the I Want song, but that opening like nightmare where Max like yeah. turns yeah. into Goofy is he's afraid of being becoming his dad. And like, you yeah. know, his the whole it's not just like I'm taking you on a road trip because I'm worried about you. Yes, that's true. But it's, it's also, this is what I did with my dad and you're going to use the same fishing pole that I used. And here's my life vest from when I was your age. And we're going to take the same route that I took. And it's like, it's this existential dread that, that, that Max is feeling like you're trying to turn me into you. And that's the, the, every fiber of my being doesn't want to be you. So in this function, like, as we just had all this, it's very clear that Max is the main character of this movie, which is silly because it's called a goofy movie, but it's like through the lens of Max that we really experience most of this movie. And then it, in the middle, we start to get a little bit more goofy, you know, Goofy's perspective with, um, yeah. um, you know, when they're at the hotel and he's, you know, with a uh, Pete's intervention on the whole yeah, thing. Yeah. Under your thumb goof, you know, like, um, which I think is another great perspective of this movie, by the way, to see how, uh, you know, I, I equated it to like a Homer Simpson, Ned Flanders type scenario where oh. it's like between, well, between Pete and uh, Goofy, at least yeah. in the series, they kind of had a Homer and Ned scenario, but like really reversed, reversed, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like, that's reversed. interesting. It's not one to one, but it, but you see how Max, uh, his relationship with Goofy, like he may not be the same dad Pete is and Pete might have PJ under his thumb, but he doesn't have his love. You know what he, I mean? he, he doesn't know respect. what's going on in his life. He doesn't. PJ is not going to come to him and uh, you know tell no, him. He what's... fears his dad. He doesn't. Exactly. He doesn't respect exactly. him. Like how many times do you hear in the movie? Oh, my, my dad's going to kill me for uh-huh, this. Uh-huh. Gonna, you know, it's. And, it's you know, again, uh, what's watched, his name uh, from from Ferris Bueller? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Cameron from Ferris Bueller. Yep, yep, and, yep, yep. <laughs> and but that's such a realistic thing. Like Pete, at no point in the show or the movie has ever in my opinion, ever shown himself to be a loving, caring father to PJ. Right. You know, he's the kind of person to be like, uh, I feed you and you have a roof. Then that's all that's it up. And right? those dads like really exist. Yeah, they do. They do. They really do. And, you know, you also see, they didn't show it in the movie, but in the original series, he also had the sister pistol, uh, pistol Pete. Mm. She did the group trip series. She never appeared in the movie. for some Pete, Pete. But, uh, Oh, my um, but with, <laughs> you know, between pistol. Oh, <laughs> Between Pistol and PJ, you got to see the favoritism difference between those two and how Pete treats them. And uh, you didn't yeah. see a lot of that here, but I think you saw more than enough of Pete, you know, uh, deriding his son to make up for it. Yeah, I think you don't see the sister because they're just like Goofy and Max. They're on a dad and son trip. Yeah, know? yeah. It's just the two of them going camping, you know, or, uh, you know, really glamping with that RV. Um, yeah. 
but that dad, that dad son relationship is like pivotal to this movie. And it's so interesting, like totally unplanned, totally on accident, but happy father's day, everyone. We're recording this episode on father's day, a movie about a father and son, you know, multiple wow, fathers and sons. This is timed really nicely. All right. Go watch. Happy father's day. Happy father's day, everyone. Go watch goofy movie and, and, and call your dad. <laughs> um, but that that relationship between father and son like as the movie starts to you know at the inciting incident of like you know we're going on a road trip yeah goofy is the villain in this movie goofy For is the ursula goofy yeah. is the character that is standing in the lead character's way of getting what yeah. they think they need which is what they want but not what they actually need and it's and he even has a villain song that that plays next. Um, it's a it's an on the open road song, but it's still presented in conflict through Max's eyes. There's this like, do you need a break from modern living? And like, but Max wants to go to his friend's party and watch a Powerline concert on a big screen TV. Like Max yeah. does not yeah. want a break from modern living, you know. And there's this. There's this part of that song where even though they're singing the melody, they're both singing the melody. They're singing incongruently. They're like Goofy will sing the da 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 and Max was I'd all all in all, I'd rather be a toad, blah blah. And they're like they're not singing together. They're not in sync together. So it really functions as this like I I don't want to be here. You're like making me go on this trip. You're the bad guy. You know, he gets his yeah. own villain song, but it's like if you if you're if you're not looking at it through that lens, like it's just a fun musical number on a road with like all these goofy characters, like somebody a corpse like pops out of a a hearse, you know, starts <laughs> saying like. Um, but it, it functions narratively, I think, as the villain song because it's like even in the same kind of you know maybe a little bit earlier than some like than like Ursula's, but I think it is like right around the same. You know, you could look and like within a couple of minutes, it probably plays at the exact same time that like um, Poor Unfortunate Souls plays in Little Mermaid, for example. That's yeah. true. And it's, you know, that's what I mean when I said earlier that like, even though this movie feels like it's completely different from any other Disney Renaissance movie, they found a way to do that within the Disney Renaissance no. musical theater formula that they've created during the late eighties and into the, even still today with frozen. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. You are right. Like it does follow that structure pretty well. Exactly. As you're saying, even within that song, if we were to treat it as uh Goofy's villain song within this movie, you even see visual reminders of why he's doing this. You get the convict going by in the paddy wagon, yeah. giving, you know, giving you a moment to be like, remember, he's not doing this because he's vindictive. He's doing this because he loves his son. Right. So it's like you still can't treat Goofy as an all-out villain because you kind of want both of these people to get what they want. Right. And it's that's that's what you were saying, Kayla, about this these characters being far more nuanced than, you know, Scar or, um, you know, Iago, um, not Iago, um, uh, in Aladdin. Um, uh, Jafar. Jafar. You know, who just like want to take over the kingdom and for yeah. just purely evil reasons. They're just bad. It's black and white, clear cut. It's Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker. It's, you know, this yeah. isn't that it's like characters with, um, you know, depth and different needs that are, that go beyond just like, I want to rule. Yeah. I, de- I definitely, 
I definitely agree with their just they seem to be people with conflicting needs. So yeah. no one's from their own pers- from their own perspective, they're all kind of the hero of their own story. But um, you were speaking about a villain song, and this isn't really technically the villain song, but one scene, the sound design really got to me, and I felt really horrible for Max. It was when Goofy takes him to the Chuck E. Cheese place in the oh, country, yeah. and then and yeah, and and Max just feels humiliated, and you hear the sound and the laughter and everything going oh, louder, yeah. and and him just kind of zoning out. It's almost as a teenager. I remember feeling this way about things. They really use the sound design yeah. and the animation in that scene to make that like a very horrible song for Max. Yeah. Very overwhelming purposely. He really feels that. And we really feel that with him too. It is overwhelming. Yeah. Yeah. And the whole tone of the movie shifts at that point, doesn't it? It becomes like, you know, I mean, even though, though there's some silly things like Bigfoot and stuff like that, that happen yeah. after. <laughs> Which like, I loved that whole sequence. Yeah. By the yeah. Way. Like this movie did a good job of remembering that we are watching Goofy. And, you know, physical humor is his thing. That's uh-huh. and they did a great job. When the scenes come up, like when this movie's emotional, it hits you like a brick. When this movie is trying to be funny, you're laughing your ass off at yep. like this vaudevillian level Buster Keaton stuff going on, right? Yeah, the old um uh what do they call them? I know it's like Looney Tunes was Warner Brothers version, but the Something symphony, silly symphonies. Uh, the old Mary silly melodies. Merry melodies was one of them. The the silly yeah. symphonies I think was Disney's version with where Goofy is like you yeah, know, skiing I you're right. and stuff like that. Um, yeah. yeah, but it has all of that like you know like you're right vaudevillian like slapstick that Goofy's just classic, classic. Goofy. But they they really make sure to nail that though. Like this movie could have faltered on either side and on both accounts. It just works, you know, so well in marriage to each other. Yeah. It feels natural within the world of Goofy. Uh, you find yourself laughing. And it's like, you know, there's little moments too. Even when he's proud of his son, he's inside the diner. He has to announce to everybody that he's yeah. promoting his son to Navigator. It's such an embarrassing scene. But you can tell that even Max understands the gravity of this. Yeah. And, and I mean, like I, like what I was saying, like the the after the possum scene, like the tone of this movie changes. And there's no more, there's no musical numbers until they until the end when they have that heart to heart and they're sitting on yeah. like, at the lowest point. But yeah. even then, like that triumphant moment of him giving him the map is like to us and to Max undercut <clears throat> because just the night before he sneaks yep. into the car and changes the route with the pencil, you know, and he knows yeah. this and he's like taking the map duties after he just did this thing. Like it, the, the, the tone of this, the tone of the, the movie from, <laughs> The possum until they're floating in the car in the river is like a series of betrayals and like touching moments and betrayals and touching moments all leading to like the biggest betrayal where he he tells him to turn left. Where's the map? Tell me to go, Max. You're in charge. Even though Ah. Goofy knows which way it's supposed to go. He's like, you know, testing and Max chooses Los Angeles. And, uh, you know, that's that moment. But it's, and I think, you know, I, I like normally there would be a couple more musical numbers in between the villain song and the love song. Yeah. I guess there's that possum song, which I'm thinking like in Little Mermaid, the the villain song, and then we have Le Poisson. Yeah. Um, and I yeah. guess maybe the possum song is like that, though it's like earlier than Le Poisson is. I think the po- possum song, I do feel, serves a purpose narratively. Yeah, I mean it's it's a fairly repetitive song, but it serves the 
purpose narratively, I think more for what it does for the scene, what you see within Max's uh, mission. Like, who wants to yeah. be near a possum? It's it's not even a pleasant thing to yeah, yeah. think about. Like, you know, think of it as the same equivalent of. Sorry for all the listeners, but finding a mouse in your food. Uh-huh. <laughs> I Maybe... just saw Kayla. I, Kayla just gave me the worst face when I said that. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe in that way, it's like an extension of the villain song. It's like to reinforce Max's, you know, the yeah. villainy of what Max feels he's being subjected to. And that's why it's earlier, closer to the other. Yeah, to, like to you could goofies. be hitting the Disney goal right now of closed mouth kissing this girl that you knew in school. But instead you're at, which I assume is Disney teen goals. And uh, instead, yeah, you're at this weird ass possum thing in the middle of the woods. Yep, like you have yep. everything kind of leading to that distortion of what the hell's going on. What I do love though is that after he gives him the opportunity to step up and be a navigator, you see how Matt changes the uh, changes it. So it's a lot of things that he wants to enjoy, but he doesn't forget about Goofy as long as he starts having balance. Yeah, like the he biggest, the like thing. the big yarn and stuff. Yeah, like stuff like that, right? Yeah. But it's as soon as he started having the ability to have some independence that his father was giving him. Yeah, yeah, it's really nice, and it's, 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 uh, it's goofy kind of bucking um, Pete's advice. Like, I'm gonna give my son a little freedom. I'm gonna let him let him make some choices on this thing. I'm not gonna do what what Pete is telling me to do. But but also yeah. at the same time, like that's like Pete's advice. Keep him under your thumb. You've got to rule over him. Like that's in the back of Goofy's mind, you know? And he's kind of like, you know, he's testing his son a little bit, give Mm. him a little bit of freedom, seeing if what Pete said is the right path or not, even though Goofy like knows in his bones, it's not the way to raise a kid. It's not the way to raise my kid. It's not the way to raise a teenager, you know, or even really any age kid. But so that's why I think that betrayal when Max tells him to turn left towards Los Angeles is like, you know, the lowest point of this movie. And it's just like, that's it, always like, lost. It's, it's heartbreaking. And then they have that big fight. And then the big goofy yeah. thing with the, the car, like huh. bouncing on the, on the mesas or, you know, the rock yeah. formations and stuff. But it's that, it's that lowest point of that movie that brings us to like the conflict <laughs> resolution, which in so many other movies is like, you know, uh, throw scar. I already said this, but like throw a scar off of the top of pride rock. Like that's the resolution yeah. to the conflict. Um, even yeah. though there's some other, you know, internal conflict that Simba's going through in that movie, but like the conflict resolution in this is like an understanding of each other and an, an openness and honesty that I think is really, really sweet. And, uh, you know, we don't see that in a Disney movie, that type of nuanced and like um, real conflict resolution. We don't see that until like the Pixar era where we get a little bit more than just the bad guys, villains, you know? Um, Yeah. And I think that's like, that's why this movie in 1995 is so ahead of its time because like, we didn't see this type of thing. Like it reminds me of the, the end of um, inside out or something like that, where it's like, yeah, yeah, it's, there's not a bad guy, you know, it's like, it's, um, there's so much more that kids can learn from movies than, uh, and there's then than just that there's a villain that needs to be defeated. And there's so much more that like adults can benefit from no. these movies as well than just like you know the bad guy in the end getting his come up his or her comeuppance. Um, yeah, Abs- and, absolutely. Yeah. I also love that at the end of the movie, when Goofy talks to Max and he finds out the reason behind everything going on, 
the first his first reaction is we're getting you to the concert yeah yeah yeah, yeah. It's like, this is our trip. This is our trip. My my trip with my dad was fishing, but this is ours. Let's do this thing together. And I really love how it's so visual too when they're on the the car, floating on the river before they uh, go off the waterfall. In that moment when they truly decide all this, that is is by such a literal definition, that is all is lost. They literally have nothing else. They only have each other at this moment. And I love that that's the moment that they can finally talk there's nothing else in front of them to do so like yeah. nothing to distract and yep. i think that's a much bigger visual metaphor than the movie probably you know maybe well no i, I sincerely expect they attempted that yeah yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah and but, uh, and musically oh you go ahead you had no, no go 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 and musically this is the next time that the first time that they right. sing together like i said was in the villain song yeah and they were singing like not together like they were filling each of the gaps of each other's melodies in like a clashing way in this uh what is essentially the love song if you will which i think is also fantastic there's not a love song between him and roxanne there's a a father and son love song which is even more you know has even more depth so it follows the traditional formula of like like um um what's the one entangled um my God, I can't remember the name of it, but also I Alan Menken. Movie since it came out. Yeah, um, it is also. But it yeah. follows the, and even in uh, Can You Feel the Love Tonight, where it's like Goofy sings yeah. a verse, and then they sing the chorus together, and then Max sings a verse, and then they sing the chorus together. Like, that's a very Disney formula for a love song, which like, you know, Simba sings, and then, you know, Can You Feel the yeah. Love Tonight, yeah. and then Nala sings, you know what I mean? Or I think it's reverse, Nala, then Simba. But that's a very formula for like, it's a very formulaic like way to write the love songs of the Disney yeah. Renaissance. And this follows that formula. But in the chorus, when they're singing together, they're singing together, not yeah. separately. Sure. They're singing in harmony. And like juxtaposed to the last time they sang together, it's really sweet. It's like musically showing that they're on the same page now that they've talked, they've come together. They're being honest with each other and what their wants and needs are. And that's what they really needed. You know, that's what Max really needed. Um, yeah. And I just, and then, like oh. I said before, the Powerline songs are in this movie to reinforce the songs that precede them. So the next song, the Powerline song is eye to eye. If we listen to each other's hearts, we're fine, we're never too far apart. And maybe love is the reason why for the first time ever seeing it eye to eye. And it slaps. It's such a good song, but it's like it's it's just there to like emotionally like lift us and boost us up and reinforce what we just learned from the song before it's such it's so cool there's two power line songs and each of them i think reinforce the musical numbers immediately preceding them you know also just a dazzling animation sequence that entire performance yeah like the, the, the perfect animation cast. In this movie oh i loved it the animation of this movie is stellar what i'm reading is uh gregory perler the uh, the editor said that half the film was shot on 35 mil and the other half was edited digitally using avid and it's one of oh, first d- oh one edited first. digitally oh edited digitally oh, that's no. cool oh that's fanta- fantastic that's fun yeah yeah all in all though this is a exceptional movie and frankly i actually wish we'd see more disney movies kind of like this i feel we did recently with uh the movie onward i yes. thought it was probably one of the closer ones i saw that elemental is currently out in theaters which uh the reviews are pretty decent barely it's a nice rom-com 
Oh, one, I got to see it. I really villain. want to see it. They said there's no villains in this movie. It's a rom-com. Oh, that's fun. I love I'm very, these. very excited for that. Andrew, uh, thank you so much for coming on to our show today. Is there anything you'd love to plug? Anything you'd like to talk about? I know your soundtracks are available online. Yeah, the soundtracks okay. are available. Um, mo- you know, not not all. I mean, yeah. select soundtracks that that I've released are available on Apple Music, Spotify. You know, wherever you stream your music or purchase music online. Um, Psycho Storm Chaser and Death Sember are available for CD purchase. If you are a soundtrack, if you're a soundtrack collector, there's there's of course vinyl, but I think CD is the best way to collect soundtracks because of how quiet orchestral music tends to be. So I think a CD is a cleaner listen for soundtracks than vinyl um, because soundtracks are at a lower volume mastering level than like folk or pop or you know even. Um, so those two CDs from me are released via a really wonderful soundtrack label called Howlin' Wolf Records. Um, and on that record label, you'll also find like Silent Night, Deadly Night, and a couple of really fantastic classic horror scores. Um, Wall Crumpler, who's just amazing, runs that label. And he's, you know, one of the, he's just such a dedicated fan of horror soundtracks so it's been nice to work with him um there will be some physical releases of the winnie the pooh soundtrack blood and honey soundtrack coming out in the next year so keep keep tuned you know follow my social medias and stuff we'll make those announcements when they happen underneath our episode here we're going to have links to Andrew's social media links to the stores to buy his soundtracks we'll make sure to link you up here thanks so much you're very welcome. It was so and, much uh, fun, Kevin. Thank you for having me, both of you, Kevin and Kayla. I've loved this hour of talking. This was so much fun. Thank you. And we would love to have you back. Absolutely. Um, Andrew, thank you so much. Thank you. My pleasure, guys. Thanks.